I've always loved the flower of the rose. My mother had a great love for roses and for orchids, for irises, clematis blossoms, forsythia. Roses were significant to her as part of her generation. She spoke to me once of the manner in which most women had roses in their bouquets at their weddings, corsages for Easter or Mother's Day or other special occasions of her generation and the generation of her mother and of my father's mother. And roses were significant to her because she was allergic to them. And so she couldn't be near them. She couldn't be close to them. So if she were at the wedding of one of her sisters, she found that she could wear the rose corsage on her wrist, but not on her shoulder. And so she could be present with the rose, and yet her attention had to be with her own ability to breathe. If she were around something with which she had a strong allergic reaction, not against which, but with which. So she would be with a rose and start having trouble breathing. So she would be aware. This beautiful rose and I must be a little bit further apart. So my mother was my first great teacher of attention. The direction of grace, wherein our awareness and our capacity for the next breath and our capacity to love God come together. I never saw her fail this, ever. In Hinduism, there's a concept that the mother is one's first guru and the father one's second guru. We are within the domain of our mother's body during our gestation, and then our father is hopefully present around us, our mother hopefully around us, lovingly wanting us, but whatever our domain of residence within our mother and father, <clears throat> we are learning attention, and so are they. I might deal with a couple where the father doesn't know what he wants, the woman, the child, life, family, work, and so a pregnant woman might be left in grave distress while the father figures out what am I going to do here before the baby comes. And so there's a there's a storm in the conception and the gestation and the birth. <clears throat> and the father, mother, and child, the unborn child, are are intimately involved in the mystery of that storm. Our great Zen masters come in and study these experiences, seeking the direction of grace, wherein one's attention, one's breath, the mystery, and one's love for God or the universe or the absolute or source arises. Oh, I who love with my attention and my next breath coming, entering mystery, am not only loving God, loving the universe, I am receiving through the mystery the love 
responding to me. This is the home of the mystic. We are safe in this space, always, everywhere. This is the attention, the attention facing the direction of grace. What I would like us to do is practice <clears throat> bringing one's attention. Uh, it's, it's described in the best way that I know of in literature <clears throat> in the books from the late 20th century of Carlos Castaneda, an anthropologist who was famously studying at UCLA and had to write his, his dissertation and he sought out a Yaqui medicine man, man of sacred study, named Don Juan Matus, and Don Juan's close colleague, Don Janero. And they used to terrorize the attention of Castaneda. They weren't trying to frighten the man. They were trying to get him to bring his awareness and his breath to the divine within his body and within his soul until those two aspects of himself became one. So <clears throat> if I were sitting with Thich Nhat Hanh years ago when there were not many people around, it would be a small group of people, he might turn in his small office and ask if someone would like tea with him. If there were five people, this is in southern France where he was residing most of the year. He might turn and have a, a young nun bring tea for everyone there, and one person might say, no thank you, and simply go on with sitting presently with Thai, that person's attention not wanting even to be distracted by the tea. So Thai would sit and have his mug or cup and saucer and the other several people with theirs. And he might make sure each of us had a small shortbread cookie, of which he was very fond. And we would be present, each being, we have a storm here, so the siren is sounding on the telephones and computers. His attention would be present and ours would join him as students of his heart and soul and attention. We would bring our attention to sit beside this master teacher of humility. He was always receiving grace. He was not only in the direction of grace facing, he was unafraid to receive the direction of grace responding to him. This is a very unusual concept in people. Most of us turn our attention to the preservation of our domination over circumstances. And a great deal of what the world is arguing at the current moment in time is who has more, who has less, who has a greater accomplishment, who has a lesser accomplishment, 
who is successful, who is failing, who is aging, dying, who is going to be vital and live to be rigorous. And so we've not realized that we are not fully in control of all that is within us and around us. We are partially in control and we are able to be responsive to the universe with the parts which are under our control or under our authority. And so when we live according to that authority, we're able to receive a lesson we hadn't known before in our next breath, our next moment, our next occurrence. I've told a story before of being given a dozen beautiful long stemmed roses by my beloved father on my 16th birthday. And we were um, at the cottage. It was, even though it was November, it was very warm. We were at the cottage. And uh, someone came and delivered the roses in this tall, clear vase. They were, you know, several feet tall, this beautiful rose with a big ribbon on the vase. And my mother was astonished also. And she was aware that the sacrifice my father had made is that he had bought the roses knowing that we would have to put them outside on this wonderful patio wooden picnic table we have in front of, at the front of the cottage. He knew they would be safe from the wind. He knew the weather was still warm enough that the roses would not burn up, nor would they freeze. It was a sort of cool, temperate, late autumn. My birthday's in late November. And so he gave this beautiful gift to me, but he made sure first that my mother was gifted. The roses came through the cottage. They remained in the building for about four minutes. And then my father took them outside onto the table. And he famously said to me, which I've commented about in several classes, I hope that you, throughout your whole life, have enough love that you have roses every birthday or every, every year, every day of your life. I hope that for you. And he has let me know over many years, he, he died in, in the late 1970s when I was in my 20s, he left me, let me know that the roses of his heart were always for my mother. And I had the grace of him knowing how to face the direction of grace in his wife, my mother. He knew how to face the direction of grace in me, his older daughter of two daughters. He knew how to face the direction of grace for his sons, his colleagues, his students. And so the splendor of the roses wasn't just receiving the flowers. It was his understanding how to let the absence of them, well, they will be out there then on the table where we can all see them and my mother could also appreciate them safely, healthily, so that they were for her, 
as well as for me. And then, also famously, my older brother brought me a beautiful small bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 perfume, actual perfume. And it astonished my mother. I, I remember the joy of that day was actually watching my mother's quiet sentiment being so moved by the love of my father and my mother and my brother. She was moved by her husband's love, her own love, and her firstborn child, my older brother Michael's love. He knew about perfume from my mother and the perfume my father had given her on her dresser, even though she couldn't wear it because she was allergic to the flowers within it. See, the, the mystery that met me on that 16th birthday was the spaciousness of something larger than the flower my mother could hold or wear as perfume. The perfume of holiness met her. She who could not breathe the actual chemical fragrance of flowers without becoming sick, right? On my 16th birthday, the sensitivity of my father, my mother, and my brother was so great that I experienced the perfume of holiness meeting me. Oh, the gift of my father's roses is the way in which he's caring for my mother on this day, yet bringing me flowers, actual flowers, and bringing them to her also, really. The gift of this day from my older brother is this beautiful bottle of perfume, which if I'm in the home with my parents, I, I'm not to wear because it would make my mother not well. But the bottle could sit on my dresser, just as hers did. Hers was called Evening in Paris. It was the same perfume her mother wore. Extraordinarily beautiful, that love. If a person came in and didn't want to be present with what Thich Nhat Hanh was studying, or my parents or late brother were practicing, embodying. A person would come in, what's going on here? Where are the flowers? What do you mean she's not going to be wearing the perfume tonight at her birthday dinner? But I could wear it if I were going out. And then I took it with me when I went to college. And to this day, I love seeing the bottles. They, they were classically made by a certain glass maker, the, the actual bottles that were made for Chanel perfumes for many years, the shape of them, the way the flasson top was ground by hand, the little knots that tie it were, are still tied by hand to this day, with a little seal placed on them. The quality of the direction of grace is always met mysteriously by something which the soul and heart understand, but which cannot be possessed in a fight. And so a great deal of the modern personality is based on the scientific method, which I believe in scientifically, that we test something. But you cannot test grace. So we follow grace with the scientific method. We don't conquer grace with the scientific method. So every time 
a woman or man or person comes into the room of an ill person and says, well, let's hope the medicine will work. A really wonderful healer, whether an allopathic doctor, a homeopath, a medicine man or woman, a person who works in different uh, configurations, one of my beloved physicians, Dr. Dashmina Dovchin, she's a Mongolian woman, uh, Mongolian American woman, trained in traditional Mongolian, Tibetan, Chinese um, methodologies, master acupuncturist and herbalist. So when any person comes walking into a room, they may use their training, which they know biologically, mentally, historically. And yet, if their attention is in the direction of grace, the next breath is answered by the creator of the medicine, by the universe from which the acupuncture needles arise by the place in which the midwife knows to have the woman stand or kneel down or squat or sit and to walk across the room or down in the garden to prepare the body for the movement. The baby's coming, let us walk for a time. The baby's coming, it's time for you to be still now. Breathe, don't push yet. Now, right? How does she know that? Or how does he know that? So this place of now, here, always, everywhere, that is the direction of grace. That is entrusted to you and to me at the very moment of our conception, through the cells of our historic mother and father. Oh, you who have never been here before, yet are here now, this moment conceived to be born, now born, now living, next breath. And in the glorious miracle of that next moment, heaven is always present. Why don't we just allow that to be present? Well, because we don't tend to be disciplined enough in life, in faith, in aspiration or hope, in love, and in attention to give our souls strength and our hearts profundity and our bodies vulnerability, our ability to be touched, to respond. We don't tend to bring those to the moment and say, Ah, oh, and how are you? What shall we do here, you and I? What we tend to do instead is quiet our attention down to a lesser capacity that denies love for God and justifies then the mind reacting. I'm here. Well, it's you. I don't know what you want. And then we test, what will we scientifically find out? And this is in our own idea of science. It's not actually scientific, but we go, what will happen scientifically if I don't trust you? 
because if I trusted you, it would be so naive. And then we miss the miracle of one moment into the next. And Thich Nhat Hanh might be looking out the window while we're sitting with tea. And we might turn and look with him and gaze and see the sunflowers blooming. And then he might turn and make a comment about how much he enjoys having one cookie with his tea. And all of our attention is receiving his capacity to love in that moment. A spiritual father. And he turns to one of the people in the room, and it's a young woman, and asks, would you like another cookie? And she quietly shakes her head no. Whether she really wants one or not, or she's being polite, or she's touched that he's taking care of her in that way, and of us all. So every moment that one chooses to allow the space between my mother and the rose to be safe, so she could say to her sister, we could have the roses at your wedding. I would just have to wear my corsage on my wrist. But I think I could do that. Every time we allow an answer to be born from the direction of grace responding back to us from heaven. We are in a classroom of God, of the universe, of heaven on earth. We are vulnerable. We will be touched. We are receptive. We are living. We are alive. We are also affecting everyone else around us. And this is part of why people shut it down so much, because we're aware, well, who will win? Which team? Who will get the job? Who will have more money or power be the most beautiful? And we better stop and suppress that until we know how to control what will happen. Or until I win and you don't. Or we win and trick the neighbor. Or we have more than they do. And that is usually called fear. And in metaphysical study currently, people talk about a fear-based culture. It's just the modern anglicized way of speaking in the, in the English language about this. I don't know as I call it fear. I think it's more of uh, Stephen Levine, like Stephen Levine used to call this the don't know space. And he would say rather than having anxiety or disturbance about don't know, from the navel area of the body and where, the, where a lot of the hara or chi or energy is of uh, East Asian martial arts and attention and the physical yogic ways of awakening. He would bring the attention to that area of the body and of the bodies of light around us. And he would say, let us have soft belly, vulnerable, breathing so the breath is allowed to come in our lungs and way down into the diaphragm, the lower lungs and the diaphragm, and have soft belly so that we are receiving. And then 
seeing with our attention what is going on between heaven and earth and oneself and you and you and you. And learning how to safely bring the attention to this until the spiritual heart and the upper will between the heart and the upper chakras and the energy systems, or let us say between the heart and mind, coming together, which in Himalayan Buddhism we would call bodhicitta, the heart, mind, and breath moving as one. So the spiritual heart and the thinking capacity of observation go, oh, I can let go and let the breath be not so controlled and tight or shut down, but responsive, relaxing into bowing to that place in another being and another and another and in oneself. So that one makes room for the attention of oneself in heaven and the attention of oneself here on earth. Oh, my first breath of my soul, ah, of my body also. When these two qualities come together of the soul and body or the heart, mind and the human domain of emotion and physicality, the attention on spiritual and metaphysical domains begins to leave the realms of magic and projection and ideas of um, the intellect being used kind of as a weapon. And instead it becomes an instrument of attention. We are observing what is true and faithful in this moment toward the future as we face the direction of grace. And then one's intelligence is an instrument, an implement of heaven on earth. And one, one's body and emotions and human domain, the lower parts of the energy system, down in the body at least, not lower, meaning that they're less meaningful, but lower down in the firmament of the body, we go, oh, I, my gut, my deep feeling, you know, is working together. It's not foolish or ignorant. It is another part of the implement that is my incarnation and shows me how to embody the intelligence, how to embody the direction of that higher attention between heaven and the body. So if in your heart and breath you would practice where are the places where I am split? Where I am not in the direction of grace? Where when I observe something on the news or in my neighborhood or family or myself, I tend to hold something high and something low. I react about all the intense articles in newspapers, or the internet, or television, media. I regard someone whose Instagram account is so sophisticated, and I am not, or I'm very sophisticated, and my sibling, or my friend, or my spouse, 
or someone at work is not. Those places are where we are using the inner attention or what Don Juan Matus would call the second attention in the language Castaneda utilized trying to translate this Yaqui uh, wise man's work into the English language. They would call it the second attention, the attention between one's body going out into all space and time. I go, oh, the second attention. The spiritual awareness of oneself. The areas where the senses and the cells of the body are not abandoned by oneself, but leave off and it's beyond our skin, let us say. The second attention. We want our current into our next breath to breathe. Ah, the second attention. That which is between heaven and my breath and my spiritual heart. When we bring our attention to this, it is necessary to find all the places where we are reacting rather than responding, where we are armored rather than simply noble in virtue, where we are enweaponed and always judging or criticizing or pushing away or armoring ourselves with boundaries against everyone and everything else. rather than responding, moving in and out of the study of holiness in everyone. And where are you of heaven? And may I bow to the place in you, in your heart of hearts, where heaven dwells. May I be a friend to that place in you, from where I study that place in myself. May we find our relationship to heaven together, always, everywhere. The experience then becomes one of contented study of being a human being. Lack of harm. The second intention starts to become home. The weather arises, quiets. Then when something comes that is difficult, we bring our love and our virtue and we bring our will down in the body, the lower parts of the will, the soft belly of Stephen Levine, the sense of our gut, our instincts, the cells of our body. Here, this person is cold. I have two sweaters. Why don't you take one of mine? Or we are aware, I'm too selfish. I can't believe I'm not letting them borrow one of my sweaters today. Maybe they're, they've taken three of our sweaters. This happened to me with a young woman in college. She borrowed my favorite sweater of my father's. And then when I went to get it back, she said, oh, I don't have it. I must have lost it. And then a few weeks later, I came walking out of the door of my room and she was wearing it. She wouldn't give it back. It was an interesting experience. We would have to ask her why she felt the need to express herself in that way. I don't know, I'm not her. Yet some part of her, in her soul, 
and I and my soul are studying heaven together. I haven't seen her in 40 years. May she be well in all ways. I am clothed in the cells my father bequeathed to me the moment of my conception. And you, how shall you wear the body given to you by your father and the great heart you're capable of through the body given to you by your mother and the soft belly your ancestors thrived and strived in difficult times and beautiful times that you could be here in this present moment, that every moment could be one perfumed by the roses of God, whether they sit outside your window because you can't breathe them with your allergies and asthma, or whether they sit on a wedding bouquet that you're holding in your hands, a rose bush in your garden, or simply the firmament of the rose in your heart that you hold is really the only protection you need as you come forward to meet God in everyone, always, everywhere, in the direction of grace. <laughs>